if you would take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Kind of a I kind of struggled uh, all, all week where to go with this because it's a standalone. As we next week, I'm going to be talking about the vision of Creekside next week, and probably the second week before we head into uh, our next series. And um, and something happened to me yesterday, and I'll just get to that in just a second. Matthew chapter five. I shared this. I don't know. I think it was about 14 years ago. But there was this periodical. Uh, that they were showing all these photography pictures and the stories that they told. And in this one, there was a series of four pictures in this magazine that depicted this story to show the emotion and the pathos of what was taking place. In the first picture, it shows this vast Kansas wheat field that was seen from horizon. I'm getting just a little bit of ring, Wade. If, uh, uh, that was just seen from horizon to horizon. And all you could see in this beautiful, vast picture was just these wheat fields and just kind of it's almost as if the wheat was just kind of blowing. And in the second picture, you saw this mother who was in great, great distress and people were around her and they had faces of concern and some were crying uh, as this field was behind them. What had happened is that this mom had lost her little boy. He'd actually wandered out into this wheat field. And in the process of it, the wheat was so high, he couldn't see over it and they couldn't see him. And so this mother, the story goes on uh, underneath it, say that she went out looking for him, couldn't find him, called the father to look for him. They couldn't find him, called some friends, and they couldn't find him. And so the third picture, you see that these people, they'd slept all night. You saw the dawn. It was kind of a picture of dawn. And then you just saw this on the horizon, from the horizon, you saw this big picture of all of these people that were walking through this wheat field hand in hand in hand. I mean, just this massive group of people from this little Kansas town that were literally kind of doing a sweep through this field. And then the last picture, full of emotion, it shows this father who was stooped down, holding his little son, weeping as people were around him, crying and working to console him. And you had the wheat field in the background. And he wept because deep in the cold night of this Kansas town, uh, his son, they never found him, and he ended up dying. Underneath the caption was these words, Oh, God, if only we had just joined hands earlier. As you study the life of Jesus, in some ways, that's really a great picture of him. Because that's what Jesus does. Uh, if, if you, let me just read to you Matthew 9, 35 through 38. I believe it's on your notes there. It says this, Jesus went through all the towns and the villages, uh, the fields. He was teaching in their synagogues. He was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, notice what he did. It says he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. They were just kind of wandering off. And then he said to his disciples, his followers, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out, field, uh, to send out workers into this harvest field. 
So we see Jesus here as he's, as he's talking about this. He's scouring the towns and the villages. He sees the multitudes, and what is he? He's moved with compassion. Understand, loved ones, that compassion isn't pity. There's a big difference. See, pity is when you're watching TV and you go, oh, man, that just looks really bad. Oh, that really, oh, I don't like that. But you just quickly turns the, change the channel to watch football or baseball or as the world churns or something like that. That's pity. Compassion moves you. Literally, the word is playing Mizzlemite. And it means to be moved in the very guts of who you are. As a matter of fact, it means to be moved, so moved in your internal being that you do something. And that's really the life of Jesus. It says throughout the Gospels, and Jesus saw the people with compassion. Jesus was moved with compassion. Literally, he was touched in his guts to do something. Why? Well, because it says that he saw these people, that they were harassed. The idea of that word harassed is that it's a people who are weary. They're, they're simply just tired from life. It's, it's in, in the original language, it's, it's like an animal being chased, and they're being badgered by, by another predator. And they're just being chased and chased for so long that finally they just, they, the fight is gone. The ability to run the race or to get away is gone. And it's almost as if they just, they just, they've been harassed for so long, they just kind of sit down and give up the ghost. And then he uses this other word, helpless. And it's a picture of an animal, like a wolf attacking a sheep, where the, where the, the meat of the back is, is literally being just stripped off and ripped off. I mean, it's like it's, it's Marlon Perkins' Wild Kingdom stuff. So an animal is just tearing away at the carcass. And he says, that's how he saw people. They're just tired. They're just running around. And throughout Matthew, this is how Jesus sees people. He sees them in the field of life, helpless, hopeless, harassed. And that's why he came. So that he could begin to infuse us with his life to begin to bring joy and hope. Even in the midst of the circumstances that may not totally change, but instead of just getting beyond them, he gives us a guided tour through them. I have a wonderful council, the, the church leadership team of Nat and Jim and, and Dan. And yesterday morning we had a council meeting and we're getting ready obviously for year-end stuff and doing a bunch of stuff to get ready for that. And we went, we met in a restaurant and we're going through all of our stuff. And there's just these guys who are just so supportive to me, but yet they have their own minds and they have a great capacity to be able to speak up and to share what they're thinking, what they sense God's saying to them and speak into my life, into the life of this congregation. I love that about them. And, and yesterday, we're, we're dealing with a lot of different kind of big ticket items of the church. We're dealing with staffing things coming down, potential staffing things coming down the road, the transition that we've been in. We're talking about our year-end budget and the budget for next year and all those things that, you know, they don't necessarily seem really spiritual, but they're really spiritual. They're really important because you've got to function like a business. And so we're you know, going through all of that. And, and I shared with them how in the season ahead, I sense God's going to be really challenging us in the area of discipleship as a church. So while we're going to continue to focus on reaching our community, we want to continue, we want to start really growing deeper and get a depth of, of, of the life of Christ in our lives so that we're being changed, so that we're surrendering more and more to him so we become more and more like him. It was a good meeting. 
it was a good time, just fellowship and, and dealing with all the business. And I leave and tell these guys thanks, and I'm walking out, and I'm waving at them. And, it, and, and as soon as I put my hand on the door to get into my car, I felt the Lord say these words. Good meeting. You liked it, but you forgot to mention the lost. And I knew what he was saying. He says, you know, you, you just kind of got a little bit too consumed in all the business stuff that's important. But there was nothing said about the lost of our community. And I'm thinking, you know, Lord, why are you bugging me this morning? Man, it's been a busy week. I mean, just, you know, cut me a little slack. You know, just say, hey, good job on the budget. Or, you know, and he wasn't really busting my chops or anything. But he was bringing me back because it is so easy, isn't it, to forget about the lost where we're trying to depopulate the zip code of hell and fill heaven with people. And he wasn't mad. It wasn't like he's beat. He just, it was just this gentle reminder because it's so easy to forget. And as we head into some vision things and some, some of the things that we're going to be doing as a church, I, I don't ever want us to forget that our first call is to grow in Jesus and secondly, to reach those who are far from him. There's an old story about a, a rabbi who lived in Russia. Uh, it was literally a, almost a century ago, and he was so disappointed by his lack of direction, his life purpose. He wandered into the chilly evening, and his, his hands were thrust deep into his pockets as he aimlessly just kind of walked through the empty streets and started really questioning his faith in Jesus Christ. Is it really worth it? What am I really doing? Am I making a difference? You know, the scriptures don't seem alive, and nothing was happening in his ministry. And the only thing really colder than that Russian evening was his own soul, because he was so enveloped in despair and discouragement and despondency, because he just felt like nothing was happening in his ministry. And accidentally, as he's walking, he just kind of wandered into this Russian military compound <clears throat> that was really off limits for civilians. And the silence of that evening was quickly startling, shaken when he heard a soldier yell out these words, hey, who are you and what are you doing here? And it kind of slapped the slack out of his thinking and, 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 and the rabbi goes, excuse me? And this soldier replied, who are you and what are you doing here? And after a brief moment, this, this rabbi, he was, became more gracious in his tone because he didn't really want to provoke this Russian soldier. And he asked him, how much do you get paid every day? And the soldier goes, what does that matter to you? What's, what, what's that got to do with this situation? I just asked you some questions and I want you to respond. Well, it's almost as if this light went on in this rabbi's mind and spirit as he made this significant discovery because he said this to the soldier. He says, I will pay you the equal sum of what you make every day if you will ask me those two questions every day of the rest of my life. Who are you and what are you doing here? Isn't it true, loved ones, that it's so easy just to kind of live life aimlessly, don't really have a purpose, and we just kind of go through the motions and we even begin to do that spiritually. And, and this is what happened to me. I really realized again, reminded yesterday, that my forgetter is so often better than my rememberer. We just get busy. We get caught up. We're not bad people. We're just busy. And we forget about some of the priorities of the things that God always calls us to do. But hear me, loved ones, we must never forget why Jesus called us 
and why we are still here today. Acts chapter 17, verse 26 and 27 says this, and God determined the times set before them, who? People, us, past, present, future. He determined the times set before them in the exact places where they should live. That's purpose. And God did this, why? So that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and ultimately find him. I don't know about you, sometimes you wonder, well, what's Christ's plan? Uh, How does he plan to reach people in our community? Well, first of all, the first thing we got to understand is, is that you and I have been strategically and purposely placed here for what? Well, what Paul, what Luke said here in the writing, so that we can help people find him who are seeking him. I don't know about you, but I know that forgetfulness can be a reoccurring problem in my life, but it can also be a reoccurring problem in God's kids' lives. We forget the brokenness of people. We forget the pain that people carry with them, the needs of the people around us. And it's so easy to overlook them and to miss them in the business of life. Even the good things that are taking place, even the spiritual things, like I said, that were good yesterday morning, but God said, listen, Those are good. Never forget. There are people that are hopeless. There are people that are helpless. There are people out there that are harassed. And I have put you in this place, in this time, to be able to minister life and grace and hope and health to them. So how do we get into someone's field and help them? Well, I think we have to do what Jesus says. Remember, we don't want to forget what Jesus said because he says this, remember who you are. And in Matthew 5, uh, chapter 5, verses 13 through 17, he reminds us and he tells us who we are. And this is what we have to remember, loved ones, day in and day out, week in, week out, month in, month out. Matthew five thirteen says this. This is Jesus now. He says, you are. He doesn't say, I hope you'll be, I I, I hope you become, I think you're on your way. He's talking to his followers and he says very clearly, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. Verse 14, remember, you are. Remember, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light to all those who are in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He says, first of all, remember. Don't forget, you are the salt of the earth. Well, what does that mean? There's a lot of different meanings. Well, it could have meant you're valuable because Jesus could be saying here, well, you know, you're just really valuable. I mean, you're salt. See, in that day, salt was valuable. It's what wages were often paid with. We actually get our word salary from the term salt. So, you know, oh boy, you're really valuable. But, well, but he's talking to only really his followers here because this is kind of the, the, the kingdom operation, the, the modus operandi for people who are going to walk in the kingdom. So, 
it isn't just select that you and I as those who follow Christ are valuable because every person in this world that has been born is alive and will be born has value because they have been imprinted with the gracious image of God. So I, 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 there could be a sense of that, but I don't think that's what he's saying, that you're just valuable. Could have meant you're to add flavor to the world. Because why? Well, salt is, is used for seasoning and we're the ones that are supposed to bring all this flavor to a tasteless world. I don't know about you, but I'm not really sure that happens on a wide scale. I'm not really sure how much flavor that the church really gives to our world. Because the way I see it, the world isn't putting a full court press on the church to be a part of it. So it's not like, you know, we're so attractive and flavorful to the world. Some think, you know what, we're to sting the world. You know what salt feels like in a wound? Yeah, yowzer! Feels awful. So some people think that that's their job. You know, you got this sore in the world of people's lives called sin. So they think they're like to be some kind of kingdom stinger or kingdom mugger and let everybody know where they're wrong and go and just kind of rub the the gospel salt into their wounds. And you just never saw Jesus doing that. And, And if you do that, please don't. Because that's part of the reason I think that the church today seems so unflavorful world is tired of holier-than-thou people, holier-than-thou churches, holier-than-thou Christ followers. They're looking for people like Jesus who can go into a crowd, into a group, into an office, into a working environment, and, and not be so holy that, 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 that they just turn everybody off, but they can be a person that comes in and begins to influence them and bring change because somehow the life of Christ is seen, felt, experienced, and manifest. Well, let me tell you what I think he meant, what I believe he meant, and probably most scholars would agree to this, that salt is, first of all, it's a preservative. One of the major themes of scriptures that it underscores continually is that we're to stem the tide of corruption in our lives personally and into the communities and the world that we live within. Now, let's be honest. We're in a dead dying, decaying world. And ultimately, we are the salt that comes to be the preservative. In any situation, loved ones, that you find your place in, God has put you there to bring some health, some hope, and some life. And so often we get discouraged or we get, we just kind of throw our hands up and say, nothing's going to change. But it's not about instant change. It's about day by day how we live. Because see, in this day, salt was rubbed into the meat or meat was packed into it. And it kept it from going bad and rotting and decaying. And we've been placed, loved ones, in this, in this world, in this community, in your office, in your home to influence people for Jesus and to stop the tide of death and decay. And you do it one life at a time, one day at a time. The way you talk, the way you live before people. I'll never forget, it was June of 1992. I had just moved here from Manteca to take over the church. I'd started in March. We used to meet over in that little room over there in the little uh, multi-purpose fireside room. This was a Sunday night in June. I was excited to be here. 
and there was probably all of 20 people for that little Sunday night service. And after the service, we were just milling around talking, and I was getting ready to leave, and this guy's name was Dale. He comes up to me, a real serious guy. And uh, so I figured, okay, well, and he had this real serious look on his face, and I thought, what's, what's this going to be about? He walks up to me, and he looks at me just dead in the eye. And he goes, preacher, I hope you're everything you seem to be because this place needs it. Well, I got to tell you something. Those words now for over 21 years have challenged me and they've haunted me. Why is that? Well, because it's really true. I understand, loved ones, my call is to simply be an influencer. And to to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And I don't want to cause anything in my life to cause harm to this church or to Jesus or to my family. Because see, my call, your call, is to really be the same thing. I hope you're everything that you seem to be. Not just in here when we're worshiping, as Kyle said, that worship goes so far beyond this little hour, hour and 15 minutes. But that when you go out there, are you everything you seem to be? And that's not some kind of guilt-inducing thing. I didn't feel guilty. It just slapped the slack out of my sails that night really quickly. And I go, whoa, for a 34-year-old kid, that was, that was heavy stuff coming from a guy that was probably 50. And I'm thinking, man, that was a reality check. And I hope that there's some of that with you as you walk with Jesus. It's not guilt, but it's, this is, this is serious stuff that we get to walk into this community. You get to walk into your home. And you get to be the real deal for Christ. So remember, you're the salt that's called to preserve and to show people life in Jesus. Here's a question for you. Is your life part of the preserving process? Are you showing this alternative life of Jesus to the people around you? Do they sense and see there's something different? Not weird, but different about you because of your walk with Jesus Christ. The second thing I think that this salt is meant to do is to make the world thirsty. See, our life is to be one that helps to whet the appetite of others who would consider Jesus Christ. It's fairly obvious because the salt content in our own bodies are set up, what? To make us thirsty so that we don't dehydrate or die. There's a purpose to make you thirsty. That's why they have for animals. Cows, they have these things called salt licks. And remember, loved ones, this is what I I live with. I am called to be salt. I've got two sons. I've got a daughter-in-law, and I've got a grandson, and I've got a wife. I've got a great, this is a great church. You are wonderful people. And my calling is hopefully to whet your appetite just a little bit for the things of Christ. One of the guys a couple weeks ago come up to me after service, and he just said, you know, Pastor, you make me want to be a better man. And I said, you know what? That's Jesus at work in you, but that's probably one of the greatest compliments that I can get, is that if I can whet somebody's appetite. First time I ever went to a country club was a number of years ago. It was Del Rio Country Club in Modesto. Somebody invited me. And I, I was, you know, that was, man, I was probably early 30s. I, I'm just a real country bumpkin. 
And, um, and I really don't know this whole country club atmosphere. So we go and we play and it's a hot day in the valley and I get finished and we go in there and all of a sudden this sweet little gal, she just brings all these pretzels and peanuts and throws them on the table, you know, and in these bowls and we're just sitting there scarfing them down and, and you know, and I mean, there's just bowls of this stuff all over the place and I don't see her for a while, but I'm hungry. So I just keep eating. And then all of a sudden she comes by and she goes, would you guys like something to drink? And I said, yeah, could you just get me the biggest Diet Coke in the whole wide world? Because <laughs> I'm really thirsty. And so she goes and she brings me back one of these really skinny little tall glasses, you know. And it's full of ice with a little bit of Diet Coke on top. So, you know, I mean, I think I paid, you know, this is country club stuff. So I probably paid six, seven dollars for it. And I mean, I drank it in two, two shots. I'm just down. And she comes back, would you like another one? Sure, why don't you just bring three while you're at it? You know, and it just took every cent that I had. And then I thought about this. Ah, I know what they're doing. Let me see, that cost me five or six or seven dollars, and that probably cost them 25 cents. I think that part of the deal with those pretzels and those peanuts was to make me thirsty so they could pick my pocket. <laughs> you know how that works? But it reminded me of a very important truth. See, loved ones, we're called to be the salt of the earth where we're making people thirsty. And it isn't going to happen because we shoved the Bible down their throat. It's going to happen because we're the salt, that we love them, that we get into their lives like Jesus did. Second thing Jesus said is you are, remember, you are the light of the world. So let your light shine. Notice he doesn't say you're to be a spotlight. You're not to be a strobe light. You're not to blind people. You're you're, you're not to be so bright that you just, you know, people can't look. You're not to be a, a, a light that's flickering and blinking so that you're distracting. You're just to be a light, maybe a lamp that really helps people see the ultimate light. Jesus, who said, I am the light of the world. So wherever you go, there's just this soft little light. And people may not notice it the first week, the first day, the first, even the first year sometimes. But over time, they go, man, there's something different. There's a softness. There's a brightness to their life. Now, those of you who know the Bible, I got to point this out because Jesus says here, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and praise your father in heaven. Now, some of you know that this is the Beatitudes. And in just the next chapter, Jesus says, be careful. Do not do your good friend, do good deeds before men to be seen by them. Do them. Don't do them before men so that you get their applause and all of their recognition. So if you're like me, you go, well, what's the deal? Which is it, Jesus? Do it or don't do it. Well, the difference really is in the purpose. In Matthew 5, we're to let our light shine and to do our good deeds before men so that our Father in heaven is praised, so that glory, so that weight is brought to him. In Matthew 6, we're told not to do our good deeds before men so that we don't win their applause and their approval. But loved ones, we let our light shine, not so you can be praised. But so people say, 
The only reason they would do that is there's going to be a higher motivation and reason, and it's because of God at work in your lives. So here's the question probably we ask. What kind of deeds would make people praise our Father in heaven? There's two words that are used in the New Testament for deeds or for good. One means good in quality. The other one adds the idea of beauty, good that brings beauty. And that's the word that's used here, doing something good that's going to be beautiful to God and for God, our Father in heaven. Well, so here's the 10,000. Well, what would that be, Pastor? Well, I think it's the easiest thing to say is that simply you begin to serve and to give and invest your life wherever God's placed you. In this church, in this community, at your cubicle at work, out in the field, wherever you go. In your home, with your family, that's where it starts. It's going to be different for deep, different people. But here's some common ones that we as a church want to make sure that we're going to be involved in in the season ahead. That we, maybe there'll be areas of injustice that we'll be involved in to correct. We want to be helping the poor. We want to help the sick. We want to help the orphan and the widow, the oppressed. We want to make sure that as part of this discipleship piece and that as we become salt and light, what are we doing? We're building godly character that is the real deal. And that we're building good relationships around us here out there in our homes. So let your light shine. Make the most of your influence. And see, Jesus, it's amazing, isn't it, that he, he gives us the scope of our influence. He says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Holy smokes, are you kidding me? The world? The cosmos? And some of you are already checking out. You're thinking, yeah, right, change the world. Sure. How in the world would do that? I mean, I can't even change my, I can't even change my family, I can't even change my life. But that can happen, loved ones, over time. It's a process that Jesus, through the presence of his spirit, works in you. And you've got to cooperate with it. But we can be world changers. But it starts, and we forget this sometimes because our rememberer loses out to our forgetter, that we can do it one life at a time. You influence one person who influences another, who influences another, who influences another. When we do our spiritual scorecard and we ask how most people get to this church, do you know how it is nowadays? There's two, there's two ways that most people get to Creekside. Number one, through the website. Most people go to Creekside three times before they ever come here. And they go to church through the website. And then they come. But the second and the most prevalent way that people come is simply through you, your life, your invite. People you work with. I tell people all the time, I says, when I first came here, you could draw a circle around this church, probably three quarters of a mile, and only two people came to this church. One was on the board and one was paid. 
Now we're thankful that our neighborhood, I just live right down the street. What a joy, all the neighbors that come to this church. What's really fun too is all the neighbors that say this is the church and they've never been here before. But I'm their pastor and this is their church. And uh, some of you have been invited to come to this church by them even though they've never come. But I think that's part of influence, isn't it? And see, I don't see people that aren't coming to Creekside. I just see people that are going to come. And it isn't about Creekside. It's simply coming because hopefully they'll find Jesus. That somehow our light would so shine. Somehow the, the, the salt of this place would whet the appetite of our community. It's one person at a time, loved ones. Hear me. It starts with you. It starts with me. It was in 1855 that Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher in Chicago. He led a 19-year-old shoe clerk to Christ. The shoe clerk eventually became a world-famous evangelist who led thousands of people to Christ. His name was Dwight L. Moody. Moody Bible Institute just down the street is named for him. In, in 1879, Moody influenced the well-educated and cultured British theologian Frederick B. Meyer. We know him today. He's done a lot of writing as F.B. Meyer to change his preaching style and emphasis. Later on, in a preaching trip to America, Meyer influenced a, uh, a discouraged young preacher named Wilbur Chapman to become an effective evangelist. As his work grew, he needed an assistant, and he hired a former baseball player who had come to Christ by the name of Billy Sunday. So Sunday was preaching in Charlotte, North Carolina. A prayer group was formed that later invited another evangelist, evangelist by the name of Mordecai Ham to preach. It was while Ham was preaching that a teenager named Billy Graham gave his life to Jesus. It's Billy Graham, as most of us know, that have told more people about Christ than anyone in history. It all started with this little guy, named Edward Kimball, a Sunday school teacher who led one man to Christ. And of course, it started well before that, whoever was influencing Edward Kimball. We don't have that. But this is the point, loved ones. Remember, remember, when you go to that class tomorrow, you can make a difference. There could be teachers around you. There could be students that are harassed and hopeless and helpless. When you go to your office tomorrow, instead of getting frustrated with that person that you're working with, you don't know what they're going through at home. You don't know what kind of hellish forces are taking place around them. Tomorrow, when you go to do that electrical work or dig that ditch or whatever you do, that person next to you, if they're a little quiet, Maybe just ask a question of how they're doing. So that maybe you could just simply whet their appetite. Maybe you could be a little bit of salt. Maybe just a ray, a shaft of the light of Jesus. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Be unique, loved ones. You'll make a difference. You'll influence by being unique. The salter you are, the more influence you'll have. The brighter your light, the more influence you'll have. Don't be afraid to stand out a little bit in a God-honoring way. Don't be afraid to swim against the current just a bit. 
Christians, we're called to be unique, countercultural. The way we manage our time, the way we manage our life, the way we think, the way we treat relationships, the way we treat sex, the way we treat money, the way our values are worked out in our life. Many of us spend most of my life simply trying to fit in and not stand out. We try so hard to be normal and not weird. I mean, you know, normal's cool, weird's uncool. But that's why God says, I want you to be unique. Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, said it this way in 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16. But just as he, God, Christ Jesus, who called you, is holy, so you be holy in all you do. Be holy, because I am holy. I'm not talking about holier than thou. I'm talking about, we talked about it a month or so ago, where you're simply set apart. You're unique because you're becoming more and more and more like Jesus. Remember, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Remember it. Don't forget it. Live it.